Here we are. Welcome to our Good Friday service for, for 2022. It is lovely to have you here with us to worship this morning. Um, uh, I, like, like many of you, I, I grew up not having um, all that much to do with the life of church. And I suppose like the majority of people in Australia, I grew up thinking Christmas was the big one. Only to find out that I was wrong upon becoming a Christian, that, that really it all, circles, it all circles around Easter, doesn't it? That, that Christmas is special primarily because with Christmas we get here. We get here. Without an incarnation, we can't have a cross. Um, but the cross is the center, not just of our faith, we believe, but the center of the whole of human history. The most important thing that has ever happened anywhere, ever, and will ever happen. Uh, one of the things that I have come to love about the way in which the modern church celebrates Easter is the fact that each year what we kind of do is we, we, we recreate the events in real time, really, don't we? That the, the kind of the classic Easter long weekend and the, the week beforehand is in real time the way in which these events took place in the first century. Last week, last Sunday, we celebrated the, the triumphal entry, which came less than a week before Jesus was, was betrayed and arrested in the garden, which we celebrated last night as a church with our service of the shadows. And by this time this morning on the first Easter, Jesus hung nailed to a cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem where he had been welcomed with shouts of Hosanna not a week before. Of course, the disciples would then awake this coming Sunday morning when we will gather again um, to find the tomb empty and Jesus alive and well, which he remains to this day. These things are things of first importance in understanding not just the Christian faith, but the whole of life. And so it's good each year that we, we pause and we reflect on them to, to feel again anew, or perhaps even for the first time, just the, the weight of, of what is taking place in the cross of Jesus. I think what makes a well-cut jewel so fascinating is the way in which you can turn it in the light. And as you do so, each kind of angle that the light bounces off these, these refined surfaces reflects uh, a new kind of brilliance as the light strikes the surface of this gem in, in different ways. In our Easter series this year, we have been looking at the cross of Jesus through the lens of several biblical pictures given to us by which we can make sense of it. If we were to come to the Bible and ask the question, what is the cross about? Why does it matter? What is it, what is it accomplishing? What is Jesus achieving for us on the cross? How could that possibly save us? Those sorts of questions. Um, the Bible will answer those questions very thoroughly, more thoroughly than it answers any other questions. And one of the ways it does that is to give us a number of, a number of pictures, a number of illustrations, metaphors, if you will. We're looking at five of them, uh, and here we are in the second of our series in five. You can see if I've got a slide up there with the, the, five, different, um, the five different metaphors for the cross, the green one. Thank you. <laughs> Program froze, apparently. Um, five facets of the same truth. The truth that Jesus died on the cross in our place as our substitute in order to save us. All five of these illustrations are, are pulled out of the ordinary life for people at the time when these things were written. Last week, Mike brought our attention to the picture of the exile, very familiar to a first century Hebrew. Um, the message was that on the cross, under the wrath of God, Jesus was cast out, exiled from the presence of the Father in our place so that those who come to God through Jesus 
can have assurance that we will never be cast out. Today, we look at what it means that Jesus died as a sacrifice in our place so that those who come to God through him will never be condemned. If the outcome of the exile of Jesus is that we are reconciled to God in an unshakable relationship, the outcome of Jesus dying as our sacrifice is that we are forgiven never to be condemned. In order for us to understand this picture, the picture of sacrifice, we have to cast our minds backwards. Why don't we begin the story three years before the events of Easter? Roughly three years before the events of Easter. During the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, when we first see this picture of the sacrifice applied to Jesus. And for those unfamiliar with the story, Jesus was born at the first Christmas, but he didn't rise to public prominence. He didn't become a public figure until 30 years later, some, some 30 years later. It comes up a few times um, that Jesus knew that there was a right time to begin. And he waited. He lived an ordinary life for those years with some spectacular bits shuffled in. But when he was ready, he made his way to John the Baptist, who baptized him. And from then on, Jesus primarily um, used his life to travel around the region as a teacher and preacher, gaining his following, working his miracles, all the biblical stories that we are familiar with. John's gospel describes an early encounter between Jesus and John, who, who did know each other, where this is said in John 1, 28 and 29. It says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to anyone who isn't super familiar with the context that Jesus and John are living in, that must seem like the strangest connection of ideas, I would imagine. If you see what I mean. Like, what have these things got to do with one another? Isn't that just a weird thing? What do cute little innocent lambs have to do with sin? I imagine there's some sheep farmer out there somewhere. Every time it's spring season, he's got to do all the docking. He's like, I just hate these sinful little lamb things. It's the most joyful part of his job. Is that, is that what he's thinking? Do they still dock lambs? I don't know. The greenies get everywhere these days. When you think of lambs, is that where your mind goes? Like when you, when you picture a lamb in your mind, what is it doing? If you said, when I picture a lamb in my mind, it is carrying a box for God and the box is full of sin, then this, this illustration makes perfect sense to you, right? But for the rest of us, that's a strange connection of things. That requires some translation. Of course, there is a context to that statement, which makes both it and the cross make sense. And the context is the temple system of worship followed by the ancient Hebrews. We see, we see this taught in the Old Testament of the, of the Christian Bible. Both John and Jesus are Jews who were raised in the sacrificial system of worship. Since God first took the Israelites, his people, from Egypt and established them in the Holy Land, there was a tension that needed dealing with. The holy God of heaven has decided that he is going to live with 
in close proximity to his people, any people. He is going to manifest his presence physically among them at the site of the tent and eventually the temple. The problem is that people are sinful. I don't know if you knew this about yourself. Sin is the spiritual condition which we all are born into, the, the condition of the human heart, what, what we call being only human, I think is, is a pretty good definition of what it means for us all to be sinful. There is something in us which makes us all rebel against the God who made this world. We don't automatically honor him and worship him the way that he deserves. No, quite the opposite. It makes us rebel against God and continually offend him. That means me. That means you. It certainly meant the ancient Hebrews. All of us have this internal compass that constantly points away from God and makes doing the right thing difficult. We are in rebellion against our creator. This spiritual condition is the source of all of the evil that we commit as a species and as individuals. It is the source of our failure to do the right thing and our willingness to do the wrong thing. And so for the holy God of heaven to live in close proximity to people in this spiritual condition, that's a disaster waiting to happen. How could he not destroy us all? He would kill them, quite literally. Was there to be no resolution to this tension? The offense of our sinfulness to God is a bigger problem than we tend to realize, and we see the size of the problem in the cross of Christ. That was the price of forgiveness. We underestimate the significance of our sin. It wasn't that bad, we, we tell ourselves. Other people do the sorts of things that I do. I'm just normal. At least I didn't murder someone, we say, until we do. My apologies if anyone's here today who's murdered someone today. I'm not singling you out. We, we underestimate the significance of our sin and we underestimate what it means for God to be holy. Completely perfect. There is no tolerance of sin with him. He is completely intolerant, our God, of sin. It is anathema to his very being. In his own words about himself, he said, he will by no means pardon the guilty. So how does a guilty people live near to the holy God without being destroyed? Do you ever feel this tension yourself? You wake up one morning and you think, I'm just very aware that I'm a very broken person. How could God put up with me today? How could God put up with me forever? The solution is that sin needs to be dealt with. There needs to be a solution to this tension. There needs to be a pressure release valve. It needs to be atoned for, for the holy God to not destroy us. And the price of sin is death, paid in blood. God himself knows this problem. 
God himself is this problem for us. And in his mercy, undeserved kindness, he has given first to the Israelites the system of sacrifice which represents to them a covering for their sins by which they could know his grace, by which they might receive forgiveness. There are so many examples in the Old Testament of, of what they mean. Let's just, let's just turn and look at the obvious one. Our Lord Jesus was crucified the weekend of the Jewish Passover. Why don't we turn there? That was not an accident. That was God's eternal timing. This is the moment Jesus was waiting for. Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the Passover Lamb of the Hebrews are connected on purpose. So why don't we have a look? The story we pick it up in Exodus chapter 12. The Passover is the final event that took place before Pharaoh finally let the Hebrews leave Egypt. It was the final plague, for those familiar with the story. Through Moses and Aaron, the Lord has decreed to all in Egypt that this plague is coming. And the plague is that all of the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt will die in an evening. All. Humans, livestock, all. We pick up um, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Understand this, from, from here on in, the celebration of the Passover is to be the beginning of the calendar year. Mark this date down, this matters. Do you see what God is saying? Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. Remember, lamb carrying box for God, full of sin. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, that matters too. A year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. It's funny, like all the details, he's narrow on. He's loosey-goosey on that one. I don't understand why. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Can you imagine walking down the street and watching as every single household on the street is slaughtering a lamb outside their house? They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. The lintel being the one that goes across the top of the two doorposts. They shall eat the flesh that night. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water. Good advice. But roasted, it is tastier that way. <laughs> its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. And in this matter, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet. They're doing this because this is the night that God has promised to deliver them from, from Egypt. You're leaving in the morning. Get dressed. Your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will strike you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the Hebrew Passover. And that imagery is really helpful for us to understand Christ. The message was the severe judgment of God is coming to Egypt and it's going to hit everyone. This particular punishment is going to be the death of all the firstborn. God has warned them in advance that this judgment is coming and told them there is only one way by which you may avoid the coming wrath of God. It doesn't matter if you're Egyptian or Hebrew, or man or woman, apparently sheep or goat. There's one way, which is for you and your family to hide behind the blood of an innocent lamb slain that evening and painted on your door. The imagery of, 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 picture it, the imagery of the blood on the door of a house and only those inside the door behind the blood who have entered through the blood into the home will be spared. Old Testament worship was very visual. Can you imagine if that's what we did here every Easter on Good Friday? We sat down in church and we said, Jesus, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This is what it looked like. And it comes Bart, the lamb. And out comes the knife. And out comes the bowl to catch Bart's blood and to paint it on the door. They were to kill a lamb, symbolizing the wrath of God and the punishment of God in death. And they were to take the blood, which symbolizes the life of the lamb which has been slain. And they were to paint it on their doorposts, go inside the house, close the door, and stay there until morning. That was the only thing that they could do to escape the same judgment that was coming on Pharaoh. What have you done to escape this miraculous wrath of God? Well, I, I painted on the door and I'm inside now. You think that is going to keep you safe from the almighty God when he visits the land of Egypt and his fury? Can you imagine how terrifying that night was? Yet it didn't need to be. <laughs> Running? No good. Hiding? Good luck. One solution. One way to escape. Be inside, behind the blood of the lamb when the judgment comes. And if that's you, perfectly safe. Nothing to fear. Likewise, to any who refused God's offer of mercy, the certainty of his judgment. This paradigm, this, this Passover, sets up very clear principles that are found throughout the Bible when we, when we talk about God's sacrificial system. We learn a few things. Why don't I pull some out? We learn through the sacrificial system 
the judgment of God demands justice. The judgment of God demands justice from sinful humanity. It demands death, both physical death and then eternal spiritual death. That is the price of sin. We learn through the sacrificial system that God has shown that it is possible for us to escape from the punishment our sins deserve through the presence of a substitute, one who stands in our place and receives the punishment that we deserve. That's what the substitute is doing. We learn in the sacrificial system what our substitute must look like. The substitute must be without blemish, perfect and innocent. I didn't write it here. It must be male because it's pointing to Jesus. We learn that those who are sheltered behind the blood of the sacrifice escape the wrath of God for certainty. As the ancient Hebrews watched the knife plunged into the throat of an innocent creature, that was the message being preached to them. That should have been me. How blessed am I to have escaped the fate I deserve. And so when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is describing beforehand the very point of the cross of Jesus. That on the cross, on that first Good Friday, Jesus was functioning as the great sacrificial lamb to which all other sacrifices in the temple pointed. Do you understand this? The old Passover lamb was acceptable to God precisely because it pointed to the true Lamb of God, the real acceptable sacrifice for sins. This is why the sacrifices worked. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away the sin of humans. That's ridiculous. Why would God find that acceptable? This was the whole point of Jesus coming described by the prophets of old. When the prophet Isaiah predicted the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, often read at Easter, he described the role of Messiah in these words. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Do you feel it? The transgression is mine, but he was pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we look at the cross on that first Easter this is what is happening at a spiritual level. Just as it's been foretold, Jesus came into this world, God born in flesh, 
to fulfill the system of Old Testament temple sacrifices. The last, the great, the true and better sacrifice by whom all of God's people, past, present and future, are saved. Have you connected this before? When the Hebrews in Egypt painted the blood of the lamb on their doors, they were offering a prayer to God for pardon, who, as it were, heard that in real time, looked at the blood on their door, and then, in a sense, from, from God's point of view, looked up from Egypt and into the first century, where he saw his son Jesus hanging on a cross as the substitutionary sacrifice for his people, where the sins of the Hebrews in Egypt were placed on Jesus and punished and atoned for. And then the gaze of God returned again to the Hebrews in Egypt so many centuries before and said, yes, that blood is acceptable because of the blood of Jesus. He showed them mercy back then in light of what Christ was yet to do. And the same thing is true today. The cross of Christ, though it happened thousands of years before you and I were ever born, is the way in which you and I may experience the forgiveness of God today. When when a person today cries out to God for grace and says, I know I'm a sinner. I, I, I know that I deserve the penalty. I know that I have wronged you, though you gave me life. Would you forgive me? The God of heaven looks from us backwards, as it were, through time to a crucified Messiah hanging on a cross where my sin was given to Jesus, where the Lord lay it on him, my iniquity. And there it was fully and finally atoned for. Turns to me in my prayer with the righteousness of Christ. Says, I accept. Because of Christ, I will forgive. When we cry out to God for grace, God sees the wrath-absorbing death of Jesus and is satisfied that justice has been done. In Christ, there is forgiveness for you today. That is why all of what we have discussed matters today. This is not just a history lesson. Just like in the Jewish Passover, God has warned us here today of his coming judgment. And if you thought Egypt was bad, this is worse. Just like in the Passover, God has offered mercy to any and all who would hear him. There is a way to escape from the coming wrath of God. He has told us of a lamb behind whose blood we may hide and be saved. God has given us Jesus to be our substitute. Jesus, 
who was without sin, perfect in every way, without spot or blemish. Jesus, who was perfect, just like the Father is perfect. And just like in the Passover, all who refuse this offer of mercy will not be spared. There is only one way. Only those who are sheltered behind the blood of the Lamb are safe. Like the ancient Hebrews, you and I must take shelter in Christ, lest we perish for our sins. But to those who do take shelter in him, there is the blood-bought certainty of forgiveness and mercy. Forgiveness and mercy unending. It will never run out. The blood of Jesus will never lose its power. The cross of Christ will never become dysfunctional. Before you sinned your sins, for those in Christ we know they were atoned for. Which means that Good Friday is both the saddest day and the most wonderful of days. We grieve the crucified Messiah, even as we thank God that he was crucified. It is sad to remember the innocent Jesus slain. And yet, because he was, I will never be if I am in him. Faith cries out, he did that in my place. That should have been me. But it won't be. It won't be. Because God is satisfied. My substitute is a good Savior. What that makes today is an invitation. There are only two kinds of people in this world. This is the message of Good Friday. There are those who are in Christ. Those who have taken shelter from the punishment their sin deserves behind the blood of Jesus. Who know him as their rock and their refuge, their hiding place and their great reward. And then there are those who have as yet refused God's offer of mercy, who are living apart from Christ, and who are at this very moment destined to face the penalty that their sins have earned. And so I plead with you, do not be one of the foolish ones. Do not ignore the mercy of God given at such a great price. Come to Christ and know grace. Come to Jesus and know mercy. The Lord says, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Fully, finally forgiven. So that we could say with the Apostle Paul, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. None. For those who are in Christ, there is no separation from the love of God. 
who could steal us out from behind the blood of Christ, who has power and authority over him. Whose opinion matters more than the perfect sacrifice of God's Son in my place and for me? Come to God, come to God and know mercy and grace unwilling. Brothers and sisters, God is willing. God is willing. He would have you. All who come to him through Christ are saved. There's no room for doubt. There's no uncertainty. This is the eternal purpose of God on display in the cross of Christ. It's why he came and he will have you. So come, come undeserving. Come broken. Come, come afraid. Come uncertain. But come. Hide with me in the all-sufficient Savior. Let's worship him together. God in heaven, we confess that we downplay the problem of our sin. And we downplay the significance of your holiness every day. We, our, our, our broken eyes see neither my sin or your glory accurately. And yet we pray and we freely confess. We believe you, though it's hard to see. God, we together here today cry out in faith. Our sin is against you and you only. And your judgment is true and just. Were we to cry out to you for what we deserve, we could only ever receive the penalty. But we don't cry out to you for what we deserve. We cry out to you for mercy, for grace, for restoration. Save us from eternal peril. Not because we deserve, but because of Jesus. Father, today we willingly, those who are willing, we place ourselves in Christ's hands, under his blood, as our only hope of salvation. And we say to you, we believe that he is enough. Because he died, forgive us. Because he was punished, treat us mercifully. Because he was slain, give us life. That is our only hope. There is no other. Father, we thank you. We need no other. Because it is finished. And he is worthy. And he is enough. Thank you that Jesus took my sin. Thank you that Jesus gives me his righteousness. Thank you, Father that you are merciful and kind beyond what we deserve. 
we pray this in Jesus' name.